If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the stories we tell about the Crusades, women are often missing. But across the 12th century, a line of formidable female royals shaped the story of the Crusader states of Outremer. Those women are the subject of a new book by Catherine Pangonis, Queens of Jerusalem. She joined me to reveal how these royal women became embroiled in power struggles, rebellion and diplomacy in the unstable states of the medieval Middle East. To start us off, can you introduce us to what was happening in the Crusader states and the Holy Land in the 12th century and where women fit into the story? Of course. So in the 12th century, the Christian states of Outremer are still fighting for their survival. They're fighting to keep repelling Muslims at their borders and to expand and claim more territory, and in some cases to regain territory that has been lost. So it's still very much in its, in its fledgling stage. Um, and it's a military. It's still a largely military society because it's a Christian society that's been founded in sort of a hostile part of the world. Um and it's, you know, it hasn't been around for very long, the states of Outremer, and those include the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the County of Edessa, the Principality of Antioch, and the County of Tripoli. And women do play an important role in this. So, you know, of course, as in medieval society all over Europe as well, they fulfil their normal roles of, you know, that women do some work, they assist with labour, they are wives and mothers. But what starts to differentiate uh, Outremer from Europe is the fact that Because of all the military pressure on the society um, across all levels, women are beginning to outlive male rulers. So women who would ordinarily be controlled by their husbands or their fathers for their whole lives are suddenly finding themselves orphaned or widowed and in unique positions to forge new roles for themselves in the political landscape. And that's what my book is trying to address and to describe. So the way that you see it, that intense instability of this region meant that women had more opportunities. Yes, it's a combination of the instability and the fact that a lot of the rulers in Outremer are dying sort of in their 20s and late teens rather than in their 50s or 60s. So, for example, the kings of Jerusalem, who were actually born in the Holy Land, they had an average life expectancy of 26 years old in the 12th century, Whereas if you compare them to their counterparts in France and England, the average life expectancy of a native-born king is 57 and 56. So you can see that in Outremer, the male rulers just aren't living as long. And that's due to a variety of factors, whether it's them being killed on the battlefield or, you know, horrible diseases that are less common in Europe, such as leprosy. Um, Yeah, it's much less common for a king to have a long reign. And as a result, female relatives are stepping into the void. And the other differentiating factor is that in Europe, because the dynasties and the family groups are so established, having been there for generations, um, even if one male relative dies, even if there isn't a brother or a son to succeed, there's generally a convenient cousin living in the next county who can pop over and assume 
assume the rule of that region and that that isn't the case in Utremer you you know the the fam- the families aren't as sprawling at this stage and so if people are keen to keep the crown and rulership within you know, one family line, one dynasty, then they're having to turn to female relatives. And so part of the reason they're very keen, you know, they're very keen to keep the crown to one bloodline and one dynasty mm. is to keep maintain unity and allegiance of the local baronage to the ruling family. And I think, you know, there's a worry that if they start trying to nominate the next king, you know, so from a second cousin or, you know, a, a nephew or something, then the the barons may not rally behind that monarch. And at this period, for the Crusader states to survive, there needs to be absolute unity. And what we begin to see is in the latter half of the 12th century, when the unity between the different Christian rulers in the region begins to deteriorate rapidly, that's when the Crusader states and Outremer begin to crumble. And so it's that they're, they're, they're living in a very delicate balance. They're almost on borrowed time in unfamiliar lands. And so maintaining a stable line of succession is vital. And it's for this reason alone that women are able to, you know, fight their way up to the top and become queens regnants and princesses regnants and and regents for their children and the like and claim real agency. You start the story with a woman called Morphia, and you just mentioned there the importance of maintaining the bloodline and the dynasty. Mm-hmm. So can you just explain where Morphia came from, how she ended up in Jerusalem, and what her path to becoming um, a queen consort was. Of course. So Morphia is actually one of my favourite women in this book, ironically, yeah. um, but we know very little about her. Um, and there's, you know, she, her her legacy is shrouded in shadows because just simply very little was written. And you know, the main chronicler for this period and region is William of Tyre. And he mm. mentions Morphia two or maximum three times. And on every occasion, he writes more about her dowry and the money that she brought with her than actually about her herself. Um, we're lucky even that he gave us her name, really, because sometimes he doesn't even do that. Um, but Morphia, you know, she was an Armenian princess who was raised in the Greek Orthodox faith, which is unusual. It's, it's surprising, but she's ethnically Armenian, but not of the Armenian Apostolic Church. And her father is someone called Gabriel of Melitene, and Melitene is in central Turkey. And the significance of that territory is it bordered on the Christian county of Edessa, which was the first crusader state found in the east. And there sort of became a tradition for the lords of Edessa to marry Armenian wives, to solidify an alliance with the neighbouring Armenians. And the Armenians are native Christians in the east. So actually, Armenia was the first kingdom Oh, you know, nation isn't the right word. So yeah, the first kingdom to convert to Christianity. You know, they're the most established Christian political presence in the East. And so they're the natural allies of the Crusaders. And so Baldwin of Bork, Morphia's husband, becomes the Lord of Edessa. Um, but what we do know is that Morphia's 25 when she marries Baldwin of Bork, um, which is quite late comparatively in the medieval marriage market. Um, and it's a good match for her. She becomes the Countess of Edessa and she brings a huge dowry with her. And what's particularly striking is that despite the fact that she only gives birth to daughters and never gives birth to a son, her husband doesn't try to invent pretexts to put her aside which has led some historians to say that they are, you know, they were truly in love, that it's a love match, um, which is a very nice thing to believe. Um, and, it, and it may well be true. It may well be true. Um, but, you know, there are... How do you see it then? How do I see it? Well, I'd, you know, I, do, I think, you know, this. there are two explanations for it. It's either that her husband was a genuinely religious man um, and didn't believe in inventing pretext to put aside his wife to secure the succession. Um or it, it's love. And I think, you know, I think it's a combination of the two. 
Um, or, you know, I mean, there's there's all the things that wouldn't make it into Chronicles. Maybe she had some dirt on him and, you know, so he couldn't divorce her or something <laughs> like that. Who knows? But also she was a very capable woman. Um, and, you know, she didn't buckle under pressure, which is, you know, that's something we can certainly glean from the Chronicles about her because her husband enters periods of captivity twice during their marriage, once when she's the Countess of Edessa and once when she's the Queen of Jerusalem. Because her husband, sorry, to go to give you the chronology briefly, I mean, her husband... Mm-hmm first succeeds to the county of Edessa and then when his cousin dies he then succeeds to the throne of Jerusalem and Morphia comes with him and that's how she becomes queen um but she, she distinguishes herself during both periods because her husband is held captive cumulative you know for many years during their marriage and during that time she would be running the show at home and holding down the fort in addition to giving birth to four daughters and during one of his captivities one of the chronicles claimed strongly that Morphia was the one who organised a very daring escape attempt to try and free her husband by sending a troop of Armenian elite soldiers dressed as monks to try and free him from the castle where he was being held. And then in other sources, you know, it talks about her, you know, leading the negotiations. So she she clearly has, she's clearly very loyal, she's sick at naught. And yeah, is it, so she's clearly a very good candidate to be on the throne in a very unstable region. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it can be easy to s- dismiss queens who are queen co- consorts. Mm-hmm. But this infers that really she held a lot more power than just being the wife of the king. Yes, I mean, so it, it, it's, it's hard to say because, you know, from Mor- in Morpheus' reign, we don't have lots of charters issued jointly in their names. So a very good way of measuring the power of a queen is to see if her signature is on the charters and the, you know, the sort of laws that her husband issues. And um, we don't, we don't have those for Morphia, whereas we do have, for, you know, we do have charters issues in the name of her daughters. We don't have for her. So she wasn't fulfilling a political role, um, like a, a, a widely acknowledged political role of queen consort in that same way, or if she was, the evidence has not survived. But, you know, the fact that she was queen for so long, um, the fact that their marriage lasted so long and that her daughters were given such prominence. So, you know, we'll, we'll come to her shortly, I'm sure. But, you know, Morpheus' eldest daughter, Melisande, um, she became a queen regnant and power in the country was left to her in her own right as well as to her husband. And so the fact that the daughters were given such, uh, the daughters were given such power and that Morphia was, you know, at her husband's right hand for as many years as she was, I think it's very hard to believe that she had only a very passive role I also think it's difficult to think that while some chroniclers do invent, you know, quite fanciful stories to add a bit of colour, because the, you know, the boundaries between the genre of literature and history weren't so solidified in the Middle Ages, I think it's very unlikely they, you know, multiple chroniclers would have hinted at this quite feisty personality and this, you know, this initiative that they claim that Morphia took if in, if she'd just been very passive and no one had heard of her. So I think she must have been a presence um, to be reckoned with at the court of Jerusalem, even if we don't have the evidence to show, you know, exactly what political role she was fulfilling. But I think she did, you know, she clearly set a good example for her daughters because all of them were very hungry for political power and agency. Um, so, yeah, I think, I, think we, I think Morphia does seem like, although, you know, although the evidence isn't crystal clear, she, there, she does create an impression of being a force to be reckoned with. Well, let's move on actually to Morpheus' four daughters, because I think all of them are worthy of a mention in their own right. Perhaps we'll come back to Melisande in a minute because mm-hmm. there's a lot more to discuss there. But talk us through the other three daughters quickly and tell us a bit about the kind of scrapes that they got into. Yeah, so it's, oh, we'll start with the youngest then. We'll go in reverse order, but... Mm. 
So Yvette was the youngest daughter and she had that, you know, that peculiar status of being porphyrogeniture, which means she was born while her parents were the reigning monarchs of Jerusalem, whereas the other three daughters were born while her parents were the counts and countess of Edessa. And Yvette, Yvette had quite, you know, had quite an up and down childhood, shall we say, because Mm, when she was two or three years old, her father was taken captive for the second time. And one of the ter- anti events she was able, you know, following the failed escape attempt with the Armenian soldiers and so on and so forth, he was able to negotiate uh, a release for himself through a ransom. But, you know, in, in the medieval Middle East and medieval Europe indeed as well, um, paying a ransom isn't sort of something you can do with a bank transfer or, you know, with, or, you know, moneygram or whatever you might use now. I'm not sure what you'd use to pay a ransom, but in those days, it's much more complicated. You know, trunks of gold have to be transported from one place to another through hostile territory with an armed escort and things like this. And part of the other terms of Baldwin's release from captivity was that, you know, certain lands in the region of Antioch would be surrendered. And so in order to organise all that, the king really needs to be free to arrange these terms of the ransom to be fulfilled. But obviously, the captors don't want to release the king until, you know, if they don't have a guarantee that the ransom will be paid. And so what his captors ask for, um, a, lo- a lord called Timotash, he asks for the king's youngest daughter to be sent as a hostage in his place um, mm. so that the king can be freed to do this. And, you know, to me, it's, you know, it's very surprising that any mother would agree, but of course, you know, needs must and you're a crusader, so why not? Um, Morphia does give up her youngest daughter and she is held as a hostage by Timotash for, uh, I think I think it was a year in total, pretty much a whole year. Um, when she was a, she was a toddler at the time, Yeah, right? she was a baby. She was two or three years old. Um, so it's, it, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure she was well cared for. I, I think, you know, I think it's very unlikely she was sort of thrown in a prison to live in the dark. I'm sure, you know, because she wasn't, a, she was not, a, she was not a prisoner of war. She was only there as a hostage. So I think, you know, it's likely that she probably brought Frank, you know, a Frankish or Armenian nursemaid with her. And she was kept, you know, sort of as a, you know, something, you know, under house arrest, you know, sort of like a guest you know sort of she was a deposit yeah exactly exactly she was a deposit she she was the down payment um and exactly so and you know there's some evidence that her father tried to arrange visits to her while she's in captivity but this this spell in captivity um tainted her reputation and her prospects because there's you know it's it's a highly fraught time the relationship between christianity and islam and you know a woman's purity is the most important thing in arranging a marriage contract. And, you know, there are some sources which suggest that she was sexually abused in captivity. I think that's very unlikely. But I think that's a misinterpretation of the the idea of her being tainted by this spell. But, you know, after spending this time as a prisoner, as a woman, as a child, it was deemed very unlikely that she'd be able to make an honourable marriage. So actually a vet what was given a different career path, and she went on to become a very influential abbess in the region, um, which was a, the only respectable path for uh, noble women who couldn't marry for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, but also what was also striking about her captivity is that uh, you'd think that if you were a loving father with your youngest child in captivity, you would probably, you know, make good on your promise and keep the terms of your ransom and pay the gold and surrender the lands. And Baldwin did not. <laughs> Yvette's father did not do this. Instead, he didn't pay the rest of the ransom. He didn't surrender the lands. And instead of allying, instead of allying with Timotash against the Bedouin, which was one of the terms of the, the contract, he in fact allied with the Bedouin against Timotash. So he really did play Russian roulette with his daughter's life there. Um, and we don't know why Timotash didn't kill the girl. I mean, he would have been perfectly within his rights to 
execute Yvette once the terms of the ransom were violated. But, you know, for whatever reason, he didn't. And Yvette was eventually returned to her family a year later. Um, But yes, as I said, the experience, although she seems to be unharmed and she lived, she outlived all of her sisters. So, you know, she can't have done any lasting damage in that respect. She was no, she was no longer seen as a potential bride. So that did change her, change her future very much. I can't imagine it would really um, aid your relationship with your father either, knowing that he'd been willing to play fast and loose with your safety that way. It's hard to say, isn't it? I mean, so I think yeah. I think he didn't he wasn't around for much of Yvette's life. He died, I think. You know, Baldwin would have died when Yvette was probably nine or so. I need, I you know, I haven't got the exact fact, but you know, so he w- wouldn't have been a huge influence mm. on her on her teens and adolescence and so forth. That would have been much more her older sister who stepped into the the role of sort of parent for for Yvette. But I also think, you know, she was very young at the time. Um, and also medieval children, it was something that was interesting for me to get my head around in writing this book, but medieval children really had much less contact with their parents when they were, you know, as aristocratic as these ones were. So, yeah. it, you know, while I'm sure her relationship with her father was based on sort of mixed of fear and respect, probably, and I, I don't think this would have changed it that much, but yeah, <laughs> she would have looked for comfort from servants and sisters rather than her father, I think. And what about the next sister who was implicated in two assassination attempts, one of which was against her own husband? Yeah, so that's that's a, that's a much greyer area. So Hodiona of Tripoli is an interesting character. She gets married in her she gets married when she's around twenty to Raymond the Count of Tripoli, which is a, a good marriage. It will establish her as one of the premier noble women in Outremer. There's nothing to say that the pop- popular opinion was that Hodierna was you know, responsible for the assassination of her husband. But Hodierna benefited enormously from her husband's assassination, which was never very satisfactorily explained. And we know occurred directly after she and her husband had a major argument. Um, mm-hmm. So she and her husband, Raymond, they were famously unhappily married. And this would this would severely impact the life of her daughter. So Hodierna would have a daughter who would be called Melisande, who would eventually be jilted by the Byzantine emperor um, on the grounds that she may not have been legitimate because of all the rumours about her, how unhappy her parents' marriage was. So there was there were swirling rumours of infidelity surrounding Hodierna and her husband. And then one day we have reports that they have this argument of such epic proportions that Queen Melisande travels from Jerusalem to Tripoli to try and broker a peace between them. And when that is unsuccessful, she resolves to take Hodierna back to Jerusalem with her. So, you know, Hodierna is basically leaving her husband, which is not a good political move for her because, you know, they remain married. And as long as she's, if she leaves her husband, then she's resigning her power in the county of Tripoli and she's going to live as sort of her sister's guest in Jerusalem. So she's she's losing her political agency there. And then immediately, and we don't have any idea what that argument was about, do we? No, but but you know, we really don't. And that you know, there could be any, it could be anything. But you know, we have rumors, we have reports of infidelity and rumors of infidelity. So it could very well have been to do with that. And actually, Hodierna goes down in history as sort of like the distant sexual fantasy of this troubadour. So she's a very romantic figure, even in her own lifetime. Um, but yes, and she's so she's she's going back to Jerusalem, and just after Hodierna has left for Jerusalem. The, you know, the Muslim sect known in popular culture as the Assassins, um, we, you know, the, their proper name is Nazari Ismaili, um, but we know them as the Assassins. Apparently, some of their agents assassinate Raymond of Tripoli, which is very out of character. I mean, the idea of the Assassins carrying out an assassination is not strange in and of itself. 
but the assassins carrying out an assassination of a high-profile Christian target is not heard of in this time and is not repeated. And so while the assassins are blamed and, you know, the citizens of Tripoli actually go on a rampage in the immediate aftermath of this assassination, killing everyone who looks not Christian, um, it's it's all under very suspicious, suspicious circumstances. And the person with the most to gain from the death of her husband, whom she hated by all accounts, is Hodierna. Because once Raymond is dead, Hodierna gets to go back to Tripoli and becomes regent for her young son. So, And for the years before her son, also called Raymond, comes of age, Hordierna is ruling Tripoli in her own right. Um, you know, pretty much the equivalent of, I suppose you'd call her Countess Regnant, but she is the ruling figure in the county of Tripoli and all the barons are forced to swear allegiance to her. So following the assassination of her husband, following a major row, Hordierna suddenly achieves the purest political power that she will ever wield in her life. And so... With all of that in mind, and you know that there is a, there is a question mark there over whether Hodierna had anything to do with the assassination of her own husband. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In the last fifty years, so much progress has been made to sort of recognise and rehabilitate the legacies of Crusader queens. Um, and without that research that happened in the last fifty years, my book would not have happened. I mean, listening to all these stories, I'm really amazed that somebody hasn't decided to make a a TV drama from this yet, because it seems to me like this is, you know, EastEnders meets Game of Thrones happening here. Family dramas, assassinations. If only. Yeah, Um, I think they should. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, So the next sister up was Alice, who you call in the book Mm -hmm. a rebel princess. Why do you give her that title? I mean, she really is a rebel princess. She's the <laughs> she's the feistiest of the lot, I think. Um, Alice is great, and she's much maligned by history. Um, you know, even historians who I really, really respect and who have whose research and work has been the cornerstone of all of my research use really sort of problematic language to describe Alice, um, like really gendered adjectives. These are modern historians writing about this woman um, and they're sort of dismissing her out of hand as flighty and meddlesome and domineering and politicking and all all these words that you wouldn't, I don't think you'd find applied to uh, male rebels or male princes in their time. And, you know, Alice's big crime that gets her all of this sort of slander from historians medieval and modern is that she wants to she wants to run her own life. She wants to run the show. Um, and this just isn't, this is not compatible with the, the standards and the expectations of the day. Um, so yes, Alice is the second daughter of Morphia of Melitene and King Baldwin of Jerusalem. She's born while her parents are still living in Edessa. So she's born in the great citadel of Edessa. Um, and she spends the first few years of her life there before her dad get, you know, gets the promotion and they they all decamp to Jerusalem. And then she's actually the first daughter to get married. And so before, even before her eldest sister is married, Alice is, you know, given as part of an arranged marriage and an alliance treaty with a young man who's just come from Europe called Bohemond II of Antioch. And he's sort of the prodigal son returning. You know, his father was the hero of the First Crusade who captured Antioch and set up the principality there. And But then his father was disgraced and returned to Europe and sort of died in ignominy. It was a very anticlimactic end to one of the one of the most, you know, sort of the greatest heartthrobs of the Crusades. <laughs> and, but then his son is, you know, meant to be as as gorgeous, as charming as his father. And he comes out by ship to Outremer, to Antioch, to claim his inheritance. And when he arrives in Antioch, 
the king of Jerusalem is waiting there with the princess of Jerusalem, Alice, to give to him as a bride, to sort of seal the deal of an alliance between them. And so Alice is 16 at this point and her husband is 18 and they marry and they seem to have a relatively successful marriage. You know, within the first year or so, they have a daughter. Um, But then rather, again, like his father anticlimatically, Beaumont II is killed in action just a couple of years after becoming Prince of Antioch. Um, He's killed in a skirmish in Cilicia, um, the kingdom of Armenia, and his head is cut off and sent to the Caliph of Baghdad. Big drama. Um, And all of a sudden, Alice is left in Antioch with an infant child. And, you know, her, her future doesn't look great at this point because she's lost her husband. She's got a daughter. Um, and her father is king of Jerusalem, and he's sending an army to secure Antioch um, to put someone else in charge and probably to bring Alice home to sort of do a period of sort of state mourning and then be shoved into the arms of the next political marriage, the next husband. Um, And sort of understandably from a modern perspective, Alice would rather not do that. And so what she does instead is she decides she wants to be the regent for her daughter. So what that means is she wants to rule on her daughter's behalf until her daughter comes of age. And her daughter's only two. So this will give Alice, you know, at least 10, probably 15 years of sole rulership in Antioch if she can pull this off. Mm. Her her father is not going to tolerate this. He doesn't want a teenage girl ruling one of the, you know, one of the most unstable frontier principalities in the kingdom. Alice gets word that he's he's coming down to sort, sort out the problem and put someone else in charge. And Alice sets about trying to win support within the city to resist her father and put her in control. And it seems she does have some support, um, certainly does have some support from the local uh, Antiochenes. Um, but she overplays her hand because sort of when she's panicking when she hears news of her father's approach, and she realises that Antioch, you know, doesn't have a great army at the moment because a lot of them were wiped out alongside her husband. And so she realises that if she's going to resist the king of Jerusalem, she needs, you know, a fighting man. She needs a military commander and an army. And so, you know, to that end, she actually reaches out to the Turkish Atabeg uh, called Zengi, who's sort of her father's nemesis. He's, the, you know, the, the, the leader of the, the, the most powerful Muslim leader in the region. And she agrees to sort of, says that if he will send an army and you know help her keep control of Antioch then she will be his uh she will be his subordinate you know she will do homage to him um and this this is this is a massive deal this this purported supposed yeah it's true and you know it's also possible that this claim that she was allying with Zengi is actually a fabrication of her of contemporary historians trying to slander her but we you know we don't know for sure but it's certainly in the chronicles that she did this but we don't know if Zengi would have would have accepted her offer of um, of you know of cooperation of allegiance because the gift and the messenger that she sends to Zengi to reach out to him is intercepted by her father and his men, tortured, reveals Alice's plan to take over the principality, and so then they descend on her with all their might. And Alice, you know, puts up a bold puts up a bold front, but is defeated. She can't hold out against them, and the gates of the city are opened by members of the population who didn't want her to be in charge and such. And she has to beg forgiveness from her father after this failed rebellion. And for whatever reason, her father decides to be lenient with her. Um, And a lot of the sources portray this as Baldwin, the king of Jerusalem, just being a, a sympathetic father who's being merciful to his terrible daughter. But actually, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, legally, he was obliged to be lenient with Alice. And so Alice's sentence was exiled to her dower lands of Latakia and Jabala, 
which were left to her by her husband. They were her sort of inheritance from him, from what she gets got to keep from their marriage. And Baldwin, the king of Jerusalem, has no right to deprive Alice of these lands. Um, so, and you know, that this all puts the, the context of her rebellion into sort of a legal framework that actually Alice did have good claim to ask to be regent for her daughter. Um, and it was only that, you know, that her father wants someone else in charge or wants to run the show himself that it, this wasn't tolerated. But, you know, there is precedent in Europe um, for women ruling as regents for their children. I mean, her own mother-in-law, the French princess Constance of France, she ruled on behalf of Beaumont II in Italy while waiting for him to come of age. So there, there is precedent for this. And Alice, Alice wasn't just um some drama queen who wanted more power for herself she was acting within the legal framework of the time to to a degree you know she if she did reach out to zengi then she was overstepping the mark but she was not sort of this crazed power hungry maniac which the chronicles like to present her as and that that is the that is the picture of her that has filtered down to us um and then following this rebellion she rebels twice more um the second one is perhaps the most serious because it's not just alice rebelling by herself she actually rebels alongside the lords of Tripoli and Edessa. And the context of that rebellion is that Alice is the second generation crusader in the East. So, you know, her parents were original crusaders, but she was born there. And she she has inherited her lands all through marriage and so forth, rather than being given them by the king of Jerusalem. And there's this really thorny issue of suzerainty between the kingdom of Jerusalem and the other counties and principalities of Outremer. Um, because what the king of Jerusalem would like is for the other, the lords of the other principalities to essentially do homage for their lands. So to sort of see the see the king of Jerusalem as their liege lord. Yes, they're rulers of independent territories, but the high king is the king of Jerusalem. Um, and naturally, you know, the rulers of these principalities and counties don't see it that way. They want to just be rulers on of their own lands, you know, on an equal footing with the king of Jerusalem, not owing him service or homage or anything like that. And that's what Alice's second rebellion hinges on. She joins forces with these other second-generation crusaders who've inherited the lands from their parents to try and throw off the suzerainty of Jerusalem once and for all. And, you know, and, you know, the fact that she has, you know, ponds of Tripoli and Jocelyn of Edessa behind her shows, and doing exactly the same thing, shows once again that this is not some sort of crazed one-woman power-hungry mission. This is, you know, this is a claim to power or, you know, a political move that sort of has some legitimacy um, and certainly a lot of popular support. But um, unfortunately for Alice, again, it is ultimately unsuccessful. Pons of Tripoli is defeated in battle and then forced to march with the king against her. And once again, she has to surrender and flee from Antioch. Um, So that was her second rebellion, poor Alice. And then, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't give up. She never gives up. (laughs) Her third rebellion. I was going to say at this point, I think I'd have just called it quits and accepted what I was given. I know. And, you know, actually, you know, okay, so nowadays Latakia, you know, isn't super nice. And, you know, maybe maybe it wasn't back then either. But ultimately, you know, she's been given a a Syrian seaside town, you know, quite a lot of wealth. She, you know, it could be worse. But no, she, she wants political agency. This is what she wants. She wants to be viewed on the same footing with her male relatives and with the you know the met the men of her rank she doesn't see the why just because she's a woman she should be deprived of all power and yeah all power and political agency so that's really what she's fighting for here um and also you know the other thing is it's you know who knows how long she would just have been allowed to remain you know living a good life in the tachyia for you know she may well have been forced to marry again at some point she probably didn't want that 
um, you know, all these things. And you know, and what you also have to remember is that she'd been separated from her daughter when she was exiled from Antioch. Um, the princess Constance, her young daughter, was kept behind. So there may have also been she wanted to be with her child and you know, ruling with her, looking after her inheritance and and have a say in who her daughter married. You know, there may have been an element of maternal instinct, which again the chronicles dismiss. They all say that Alice was trying to disinherit her daughter and so forth, but there's really there's really nothing to suggest that. Well, you know, her last rebellion is much the same. She manages to get back to Antioch while the King of Jerusalem is sort of not looking. Um, and he sort of gives her permission to remain there. And it's all a bit too quiet. You know, she's expect, you know, so everything's going a bit too well. Why has no one tried to kick her out, out of Antioch yet? All these things. And she has the support of the patriarch, which makes life a bit easier for her. And then one day, a suitor arrives, um, a man from France, Raymond de Poitiers, and he knocks on the door of the city. And he says he's come to offer marriage to the princess. And Alice is probably a bit nonplussed by this, but the patriarch says, oh, you should, you should think about this. This isn't a bad option for you. And Alice probably thinks about it and looks at this guy. He's quite good looking, seems to be quite charming. And she probably reasons, well, actually, you know, I've been twice disgraced. I've rebelled twice. Um, I may not get good offers of marriage. And actually, if I'm married to this powerful warlord from France, um, then maybe he'll be able to help me keep my claim to Antioch and help defend my interests. And it will, and at least, at the very least, it will stop me being forced to marry someone else. So why not? And so she starts making preparations for this wedding. And then, you know, what doing whatever one would do to prepare for their wedding, you know, maybe ordering a new dress, ordering a feast, la la la. And then while this is happening, Raymond of Poitiers sneaks into, you know, the church in Antioch with the little princess Constance, who's about eight at this time, and marries her instead. And it was all it was all a bit big trick orchestrated by the King of Jerusalem. As I mentioned before, Alice's major claim to power in Antioch is through her daughter Constance, because Constance is the undisputed heir to the principality, who will inherit one day. She is the only surviving daughter of Beaumont the Second and granddaughter of Beaumont the First. And so the only way to get rid of Alice's claim to power would be either to kill Constance, which would be you know, futile. It would serve. It would be cruel, unchristian, and would serve serve nobody, and be a waste of a waste of a healthy heir. Um, or to marry Constance to a man in the king's pocket, who would then, because then everything that was Constance's would become her husband's, and her husband would be of ruling age. So then the husband would be the undisputed, you know, ruler of Antioch. And so that's what the king of Jerusalem organizes. He organizes for he, you know, sends envoys to this appropriate man in Europe, Rome de Poitiers, gets him out to Utrecht in disguise. Nobody knows he's coming or for what reason, and then makes it look like he's come out of, of his own accord to marry Alice. And he tricks Alice into letting him in and giving him access to Constance and so on and so forth. And the patriarch is in on it as well. He betrays Alice. And yeah, and so, and so that's that's how Alice is finally defeated through her daughter being married to this much older man. And then Alice is exiled. So I realise that we've got quite far through this discussion without touching on two of the biggest figures in your book. Yeah. So first is uh, Melisande, the, the eldest daughter of Morphia. What can you tell us about her path to the throne and um, some of the challenges she faced as a ruler? Melisande, um, yeah, so Melisande is the first queen regnant of Jerusalem, which is really exciting. Um, and, you know, she's one of three women in the 12th century, three sort of European rulers. And Melisande isn't European, but she's part of, you know, a European society, if you like, that follows the, you know, is founded by Europeans and with the European cultural influence. So we'll include her in it. Um, but the other two women are Araka of Castile and Matilda of England. And these three women in the 12th century 
uh, managed to take power in, the, in an almost unprecedented way. And and that's one of the, the you know the main ways that Melisande comes into study in in um, more mainstream history in comparison to these other figures. But yes, so Melisande is the eldest daughter of Morphia and Baldwin, and when her father and she, her father arranges a good marriage for her to a man called Fulk of Anjou, who comes out from Europe to marry her, um, and they marry, and that's fine. They have a son quickly. She's fulfilled her main job as a medieval wife pronto. Well done, Melisande. And then as her father is dying, he realises that he, or he, maybe he's known it all along, it's unclear, you know, he doesn't want to leave power just to Melisande's husband, which would be the, that that would be the natural order of things. If Baldwin dies, the power, you know, it would be sort of the implicit line of succession would be that the power would go to his daughter and her husband, but the ruling power would go to her husband. And he suddenly becomes concerned that if he allows this to happen, then perhaps the husband could invent a reason to divorce his daughter, marry someone else, and then, you know, his bloodline would be cut off from the throne of Jerusalem. And so he wants to guard against that. And the way he does that is by, on his deathbed, he summons his daughter, her husband, Fulk, and their baby son, the future Baldwin III, and he changes his will. And he says that, in fact, the ruling power of the kingdom of Jerusalem will be left in equal parts to Fulk, Melisande, and his grandson, Baldwin III. And so Melisande inherits power jointly with her husband. And, in, you know, at first, it doesn't seem that she exercises much of this power. I mentioned charters before and how they're a good way of judging uh, a queen's power. And actually, a lot of the charters from the early part of Melisande's reign with her husband don't bear Mel- Melisande's seal. So, you know, Mel- Melisande isn't necessarily listed in all the witness lists. So it looks like she's being excluded from power. And then a few years into their reign, this enormous scandal erupts surrounding Melisande's cousin, a man called Count Hugh of Jaffa, who is accused by one of his stepsons of having an affair with the Queen in open court. So that would, you know, this is problematic on several levels. A, you're not meant to have affairs. B, they're cousins, so it's an incestuous affair. And C, if the Queen is guilty of having an affair, it, you know, it's it casts aspersions to the legitimacy of her child. And so that throws the succession's question. Um, and then, you know, an extra point is that in the Medi- in the Middle Ages in Outremer, you know, the, the punishment for adultery was something called rhinotomy, having your nose cut off. So it really would be pretty disastrous for Melisande if these claims weren't dismissed. Um, so it's a huge insult both to Hugh and the Queen. And this goes, turns from just, you know, something that sounds like a personal insult and attack into a full-on rebellion because Hugh... Hugh flees and he rallies supports him and he actually, like Alice, creates a Muslim allegiance with the Egyptians of Ascalon and they try to rebel against King Fulk. Um, and they are not successful, unfortunately. The, the army of Jerusalem is very powerful and King Fulk is successful in, in quelling the rebellion. However, it seems that popular opinion is really with um, is with Hugh of Jaffa and Melisande. And so he, you know, it, it seems impolitic to either execute or permanently exile Hugh. So the punishment given to Merzon's cousin is that he will be exiled for three years, but then he can come back. However, while he's waiting for his ship to take him to exile, he's randomly stabbed by a knight who, and everyone believes that this, this assassination attempt has been orchestrated by the king. Um, and so it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a public relations disaster for King Fulk. And then Hugh dies not long after and Merzond completely loses her temper. And the chronicles are very adamant about this, that from that day forward, the king was terrified of his wife um, and never did anything without her permission. So it really took that rebellion 
and the death of Hugh of Jafford to sort of awaken Melisande to um, her, you know, her inner fire and her desire for political agency and to assert her claim to the to ruling in Jerusalem. And from that day forward, actually, she and her husband are clearly ruling together. They're carrying out, you know, they're offering, you know, architectural patronage together. They're issuing charters jointly. Um, and so it took a while, but eventually Melisande manages to assert her right to rule in Jerusalem. And then um, her husband dies uh, and, you know, when she's still relatively young. And so from that point forward, Melisande rules in her own right as the queen. She's queen regnant, but she's also re- she's regent for her son. So she is then the only ruling figure in Jerusalem. And the second half of Melisande's reign, she is ruling by herself. And then even after her son comes of age, she manages to sort of fob him off for several years and maintain power in the kingdom. And then eventually it all comes to the head and to a head and the mother and son actually have like their civil war occurs between the two of them as they, they fight it out for power. And eventually Melisande does withdraw to Nablus and leaves much control of the, king, control of the kingdom to her son. But by this point, she has, you know, she's been ruling for decades. She's the first queen regnant in the history of the Holy Land. And yeah, I mean, she's set a precedent so for female rule and she's proven that women can do a good could do a good job in that role um and the chroniclers you know they they praise her greatly you know william of tyre refers she calls her wise and and the equal of any man and all these things so she she clearly does create a great impression for female rulership so while melisande did a very good job at holding on to power um Someone that followed the other queen regnant mm-hmm. did a was less successful, shall we Indeed. say? A woman called Sibylla. <laughs> what can you tell us about her? So Sibylla's Sibylla's probably, you know, the most famous of the queens that all the women that we'll talk about today because she's, you know, she's famously portrayed in the, the Ridley Scott film Kingdom of Heaven by Eva Green. Um, and she's famous because she's the queen who loses Jerusalem. And a lot of, and you know, a lot of people do lay the blame for the loss of Jerusalem, not specifically at Sibylla's door, but at the door of Sibylla's husband and sort of by extension, Sibylla herself, because Sibylla very much chose her husband um, and she, she she made a bad choice. Um, mm. She married a man called Guy de Lusignan, who, um, yeah, as came from France, came out from France to marry her and was not of her level socially. You know, he didn't come out, he wasn't, the, he wasn't of the same status as Fulke of Anjou, for example. And it seems like there was a there was a love match between the two of them, and that she probably slept with him before they got married, and so the wedding was rushed through to cover up a scandal. Um, and it seems he was chosen by her mother. He did not have the loyalties in the east or the the military skill to be the ruler of a kingdom that was on, that was fracturing, because it was at this point I mentioned before that um, the second half of the twelfth century, so Sibylla's ruling in the eleven eighties, that. Uh, factionalism and disunity is rife in the Christian forces in Utremer. So, you know, Odessa is, you know, Antioch isn't helping out Odessa when they need it, all these things. Everyone is fighting among themselves. There's contests over who should be queen of Jerusalem because Sibylla has a half-sister and some of the nobles back her half-sister instead of her. Um, and so it's a time where you really need a strong hand on the reins and Sibylla and Guy de Lusignan did not offer that. Um, and this was also at the same time that Saladin was coming to power in the east and was uniting mm. the you know uh, Muslim forces to drive the Christians out, and so yes, yeah, Sibylla is queen at a much a much more a difficult time because this is the rise of Saladin, who's a who's a brilliant military leader, um, and would have given any of the kings or queens of Jerusalem a run for their money. But you know what we have here is perhaps one of the weakest kings and queens of Jerusalem being pitched against the strongest Muslim ruler. 
And the result is the defeat of the Christians. So Sibylla is often blamed. She's the figure that's blamed for the fall of Jerusalem. Do you think that that's fair? I mean, no. I mean, she was, she, I didn't, you know, I think, as I say, you've got, you've got one of the weaker rulers being pitched against one of the stronger Muslim leaders. And I don't, I don't think we have evidence to suggest that had perhaps Melisande been ruling when Sibylla was, that she would have been better at resisting Saladin. I like to think that she would have been, but I think, you know, Saladin presented an unstoppable force at that time. And the real, the real crux of the matter happens at the Battle of Hattin, where the army was ambushed away from water overnight and then slaughtered in the course of a day. Um, and it was it was a military disaster that wiped out the army of Jerusalem. So, you know, people, you know, Sibylla was in Jerusalem when it fell and she was one of the people commanding the siege. I think she did a perfectly good job there. <laughs> like, um, yeah. She and her commanders that she was with, you know, they acquitted themselves well. But, you know, the fact that, her, you know, her husband was in charge of the army that led to the, that, that, that made the decisions that led to the defeat at Hattin, you know, and Sibylla's devotion to her husband was, I think, problematic. I think had Sibylla died, had Sibylla not been under the influence of Guy de Lusignan and perhaps her mother as well, and, you know, bringing her to make these bad decisions, perhaps the fate of the Kingdom of Jerusalem would have been different. But, you know, at the same time, Sibylla had one of the more difficult lives of any of the queens of Jerusalem in that, you know, she, um, well, her parents, you know, her parents divorced when she was small, she was sent away from the court. Um, when she came back, you know, her brother was dying of leprosy. You know, her brother had leprosy. She had a stepsister who was going to be one of her rivals for life. She died when she was 30, by which point she already had five five babies and lost them all. And she was the queen of Jerusalem at a time when, you know, just forced, you know, just tremendous pressures were being put on the borders and she did not have the cohesive support of her barons. And so I think, you know, maybe a really brilliant leader could have done a better job, but you know, and so Sibylla, I think it is fair to say Sibylla was not a brilliant leader, but I think it's also unfair to say that it's her fault that the Kingdom of Jerusalem collapsed because I think many of the rulers who came before her on the throne of Jerusalem would not have put up, would not have managed to uh, avoid defeat either. So it's, you know, it's one of those things that's very hard to say. So I think my final question to you would just be that when we think about the Crusades, in my mind, I think primarily of of men fighting. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that the women in this story, which play really pivotal roles, as you've kind of shown throughout this podcast, have not been better remembered? I think, you know, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's many factors at play there. And I think, I think that, I think the biggest one is that history has for so long been written primarily by male writers um, for centuries. And a lot of the way we, you know, history is written today is using textual evidence, is using chronicle evidence, you know, um, most historians, I mean, some historians are also archaeologists, but most aren't. Most are using the historical record rather than the archaeological record. And that historical record was written by men. And it was mainly in the Middle Ages written by clerics. And, you know, clerics didn't interact with women on a daily basis. You know, they, you know, they're this particular type of person writing these chronicles. And they're writing in, you know, a very patriarchal society. And, you know, for that reason, they focus on the deeds of men. Um and, you know, I think, you know, it's not particularly the modern historian's fault, but it just means, you know, that they haven't written more about the women. But because naturally, if you're if you're reading a chronicle that is 95 concerned, 95 percent concerned about men, then your the work you derive from it, the work you build, you know, you, you, you know, you that is inspired by those chronicles and that uses those chronicles as the bedrock of their research 
is also going to be male heavy. Um, and also, you know, the Crusades are interesting in, in many ways, but, you know, primarily as military endeavours. And the fighting was done for the most part by men. Women didn't lead the armies. We don't have, we don't have women in, you know, like, you know, beautiful armour riding out against the Saracens, you know, as like, you know, lots of myths suggest. That did not happen. Um, but women did play interesting political roles at home. And, you know, and lower class women did march with the armies. You know, it's sort of, I went to a lecture recently and they were like, well, where did the firewood for the Roman army come from? And it's like, again, there, there are always women with armies, whether they're cooking, they're washing clothes, they're collecting firewood, they're foraging, whatever they're doing, but they're there. But they're, you know, they're a footnote, they're a side note. Um, and I think the same has happened with the, you know, the great female leaders of the Crusades. They are, they are talked about sometimes. And in the last 50 years, so much progress has been made to sort of recognise and rehabilitate the legacies of Crusader queens. Um, and without that research that happened in the last 50 years, my book would not have happened. But yeah, I think, I think, I think the attitude is changing now. And yeah, there's much more emphasis being put on rewriting the roles of women back into the historical record, which is, which is great. That was Catherine Pangonis. Her book, Queens of Jerusalem, The Women Who Dared to Rule, is out now, published by Orion. You can find a buying link in the episode description of this podcast. Catherine also wrote a feature on Jerusalem's medieval queens in the March issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes pieces on the Western Front, new discoveries about the Vikings, a forgotten figure of the Roman conquest, and plenty more. If you're interested in medieval history, then make sure you sign up for our medieval newsletter. You can find out more about that at historyextra.com forward slash newsletters. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Thirty Years' War. Thank you.